We're going to be looking at the book of Romans. We're going to be studying the book of Romans. And today I'm going to introduce you to some of the primary considerations that we need to have in our minds, that we need to understand as we're studying the, the book of Romans. It's uh, We will be here for a long time. It's a long book with profound and, and great doctrinal truth in it. But in order to get us off to a good start, we're actually going to go fairly slow here for the first two or three Sundays. I'm going to read to you this morning verses 1 to 7 of chapter 1 to let you look at what's written here with me in the inspired Word of God. And then I'm going to help you understand some of the some of the things being said here in the introduction. So read with me from chapter 1 and, and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These seven verses really are at least the beginning of, of Paul's introduction for us to know him, a little bit about him. More importantly, at least as important, more important that the two go together like hand and glove, and I'll hopefully help you understand what I mean, but Paul's introduction is also to introduce us to his master, capital M. He's explaining to us his calling. He's explaining to us his duty. Because of the calling he's received, he makes some comments about what he calls the gospel of God. He makes some comments about God's Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. He makes a reference to his apostleship, called to be an apostle. And he also refers to what are the called of, of Jesus Christ. And then he finally names the recipients, the people who will receive the letter when it gets to them there in Rome. If I'm not mistaken, in Romans chapter 15, he says that uh, Phoebe is going to be delivering this letter to them who are in Rome. He says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God and called to be saints. Now there's some really significant fundamentals. One is going to come from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. You and I have read that numerous times over these years. All scripture, it's the word graphe, which is a, a reference to the writings. The word graphe means writings. All of the writings are inspired, or the, the Greek is two words, God breathed. It is the product of God's Breath, and since God is spirit, you're not to imagine him breathing physically the way we do. But I believe you understand what it means. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, or it might also say perfect, or it might say mature. Scripture is for Christian maturity. Scripture is God-breathed for, for Christian perfection. Not perfection as in you're going to learn how to live a sinless life. Perfection as in a completed man. A completed woman who has been born again and is pursuing the calling that God has put on your life. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
The Word of God is the supernatural product of God's revelation. And as we get into the book of Romans, we need to at least contemplate, begin to try to understand what it means that this book, this letter, it's, it's a relatively short letter. You could read it in an hour, I think. Is the product of God's inspiring Paul to write it. It is a supernatural product. Yet, by the hand of the man that he has chosen and called to write it, another important reference as we think about where a letter of Scripture sits in our own minds is in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter 1 and verse 19 speaks about the prophetic word. Peter says, now we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now, when Peter is referring to this in the book of 2 Peter, he has just told the people reading his letter, he says, we had this very personal experience with the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was changed before us. And then he goes on to make this comment. He says, we have the prophetic word confirmed or made more sure, it says in some translations, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. The word, the inspired word is the thing that the Christian should be heeding. Well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That means Peter is commending to you the word of God as the place where you give your attention. It is the place where you focus your attention. Similar to the passage we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is how you are going to be equipped and prepared for every good work. Peter is not commending an experience like what he had experienced in seeing the Lord Jesus transform before his eyes. He's not commending that. That's why this passage in Peter is quite important. He's saying, I do commend to you the prophetic word that you do well to heed. And then look at verse 20, 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. He says, knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It doesn't mean what you want to invent it to mean. You're not allowed to have your own free inventions of things. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. The connection I am making for you to Romans is Paul's writing is in the graphe. Paul's inspired writing is this miraculous revelation by the hand of Paul. And when Peter speaks about the prophetic word, the revealed word of God, he says, No prophecy came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we see that the, the belief and the conviction of the apostles is that the word of God book of Romans is the product of God's spirit moving a man. The word there that says holy men moved of God. The word moved there is the word that is used to describe how a ship is moving through the sea. The word is Pharaoh. And as wind presses on the sail of a ship and moves it through the waters, this is the word that is used to describe how it is. And a man like Paul would write a book like the book of Romans. I want to tell you a little bit about what we know, what we can make of the when, the who, the identity of the writer of this book. Paul comes to us Really, in the book of Acts, there's a number of things we know about Paul. Acts 16, 37. 
gives us one of several pictures of who Paul is. Paul, what is his identity? Who is this person? Look at what it says, Acts 16, 37. Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly. So they had been arrested and then they were beaten by the, by the guards who had taken him. But look, listen to what he says. They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. That's a key phrase there, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. That's almost like saying, you know, I've just been arrested, I've been put in jail, and nobody even read me my Miranda rights. In other words, there is due process for a Roman citizen. And when he said uncondemned Romans and have thrown us in prison and beaten us, he's saying Romans cannot have this done to them. Paul is a Roman. Okay, Paul is a Roman. But it's the superpower of the world in Paul's day. Listen to how he keeps writing here. And now do they put us out secretly? In other words, you're just going to have to sneak us out the back door after you've treated a Roman like this? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. The them in this passage is the, the local mayor, the local authorities. You have them come and speak to us. In other words, you can't treat a Roman like this and not expect to be in trouble with the Roman government. And so the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Paul is a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman. He was born in a free city. I'll tell you what we mean by that. He's called Paul of Tarsus in Acts 21. Acts 21, 39. Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus. Tarsus. Tarsus is the capital city of a province called Cilicia. So Paul was born in this place called Tarsus. Cilicia had been captured by Pompey initially and made a Roman province. Tarsus was given free status and I'll explain that too. It was given free status by Emperor Augustus, who ruled between 54 and 68. Augustus, following Pompey, Augustus recognizes Tarsus and the province is Cilicia, and he says, I will give you free status. What that meant was, is that that city, that region was allowed to choose its own leaders. They could vote for who or however it is they go about determining who their, their leaders are. They would be allowed to rule and govern their affairs in that sense. Quote, free cities in the Roman Empire were allowed to govern themselves by their own laws and customs and given the privilege of selecting their own magistrates. Someone born in the free city Someone born in the free city is granted Roman citizenship and rights. That wasn't true of everybody who wasn't raised in Rome. But it was true of Paul who was of Tarsus, which is the capital of Cilicia. He was born in this free province. An uh, old or ancient philosopher and historian named Strabo says of Tarsus of Cilicia, he says that in all that relates to philosophy and general education in Tarsus, Tarsus was more illustrious than Athens and Alexandria. In other words, every culture and every society has places that you know are are at the height of that place's culture and education. If, if you were to guess, you know, where, where are the best universities in America? Well, we know there's one in the Bay Area called, called Stanford. 
We know there's a place called Cambridge. We recognize certain centers of culture and education. Well, Saul was raised and trained in Tarsus of Cilicia, which is the the educational and cultural uh, high apex in the world at that time. Look at Acts 22.3. We learn one more thing. Not only is, is he a person who is raised in one of the chief cultural centers of the world, he says in Acts 22, verse 3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. He is a student of Gamaliel. Now, the the city where he was raised, I'm not sure has an equivalent in, in our day. In his day, I think it made a bigger difference than it makes today. In the same way, his teacher in his day is similar to us in our day by the comparison we might make to a school. As in today when someone is bragging about their pedigree, or you in your own mind are, are, are attracted to admire them in their pedigree, it's because of the school they said they trained in. They don't normally give you the name of their professor and you say, oh, you studied under that person. Today we say it's a school. We, we recognize that by the name of the school, not the scholar. But in the time of Paul, and in the more ancient world, a school was only famous because of its professor, because of its teacher, like Aristotle or Socrates or Pythagoras, for example. So a school wasn't so much as the professor of the school. Josephus speaks about the family of Gamaliel. Josephus was a historian who wrote about the history of the Jews and was contemporary to that century. He describes the family of Gamaliel as very illustrious and that rabbinic literature, listen, this is interesting, rabbinic literature pictures Gamaliel as the grandson of the great Hillel. Hillel was one of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history. And listen to what else he says. He says, the honorific title of the elder was bestowed upon him as it was upon his father and grandfather. So Gamaliel was given title, the elder, to recognize him and his achievement and his prowess as a learned and respectful scholar. He was the first, Gamaliel was the first of only seven in all of rabbinic history, to be distinguished, and there's a special word, they called him rabban instead of rabbi. They called him rabban. He may thus be understood as the greatest living authority and most revered figure in all of Judaism. That was the opinion of Josephus about Gamaliel. So when we read in the book of Acts, when Paul says, I was a student of Gamaliel, I don't think there's an equivalent in our culture in terms of where he was raised, who he studied under, who his teacher was. Having your learning, having your pedigree from someone like Gamaliel would be a very, very high mark of accomplishment and distinction. And yet in Acts 22.4, we find another interesting fact about Paul, Acts 22.4. Paul had said in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today, 
I persecuted this way, and I believe it'll say that with a capital letter there in your Bible, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons men and women. In other words, Paul was so zealous and fervent for his God that he gave his life to capturing Christians. The way is a, a synonym for Christians. So he would go after Christians. He would go after people of the way. And he would capture them and have them put to death. So I wanted to take a moment. Pre-conversion, before Paul is born again, he is a very remarkable man in terms of his culture and his upbringing, his intelligence, his zeal for his religion. But Paul was an unsaved man in that mode of going after the people of the way and in all of his training and in all of his success as a, he would probably refer to himself as a, an exacting follower of God. But the Lord Jesus puts together a divine humility with theology. Men can have great theology. You can have great understanding of the Bible and of theology. But if you possess no humility, you're lost. Knowledge and intelligence can't save people. And the Lord Jesus would even refer to the need of a man to die to himself if he is to gain life. And one of the things we learn in this book of Romans, because we know who the author is, is that this letter is from the hand of a man who did truly, truly die to himself. We know who he was in the flesh, and we eventually know about him in the spirit. The Lord Jesus said, John 12, 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground. You remember what the Lord Jesus said about a grain of wheat falling in the ground? Now, the Lord Jesus didn't usually tell stories about seeds and plants so you could know about botany. What did he say? He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. What is Jesus speaking about when he speaks about a grain, a seed? He's speaking about a man. He's speaking about a woman. He's speaking about a person and the life they may live of themselves or the life they will live when they die to themselves. So when the Lord Jesus speaks about the grain, he's speaking about a man. And then he goes to say, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The Lord Jesus challenged men and women over and over again. John 12, 26, he says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Our perceptions and our life are truly a struggle of passions. Your life is a struggle of your passions. Now, passions aren't necessarily strictly romantic. Passions are what moves you. What stirs you? That's what your life is about. Where does your mind go when you have some free minutes? Where do your hands and, and your life go when you have a little bit of free time? Your passions are the thing that drive your lives. Your passions can even be fearful things. What kind of fearful things drive and, and motivate you? Some people strive for self. Some people strive for a cause of some kind, and some people just kind of lazily wait until this life ends. But when the Word became flesh, 
John 1. And the Lord Jesus Christ preaches life. When he preaches life to the ambitious, or when he preaches life to the lazy, or when he preaches life to the fearful, or when he preaches life to the perverted and the murderous, he shows people that death to self is the way to live. And the Lord Jesus taught men how they might find peace with God and eternal life. And Paul, he's an example who who met the Lord Jesus under very unique circumstances. We know he met the Lord Jesus face to face under extremely unique circumstances, but this changed his life. It changed his life. And so this is what I want you to make sure you know about Paul. Paul was an incredibly successful man in terms of where he grew up and where his training was and what he was about doing. We would admire him in every way unless you were a Christian and then you would be afraid of him because you would be afraid he would come and kill you. Look at Acts 9, 1 to 6 with me. Acts 9, 1 to 6. We see what happens to a person when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, is how he introduces himself in Romans 1.1. Let me read you Acts 9.1-6. Saul, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was Paul's life. He was so zealous for God that he had to stop what he believed was the worst false teaching to ever come to the, the people of the Jewish race. And that's why he was so opposed to them. Verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who is Paul persecuting? Who's he going to get? Followers of the way. Paul is going to arrest and kill Christians. Now, what does the voice say? Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? What he was doing, God explained to him in the simple phrase, you are not opposed to these people. You are actually opposed to me. Paul answers in verse 5, he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Paul's life was turned upside down with one question. That is his, his purpose and his point in life, his mission in life, his work in life was truly brought to an end and redirected in about 30 seconds time. He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now Mark 8, 34 to 36, goes back to the idea of a seed falling into the ground. When a man and a woman, when a man or a woman, when a person meets the Lord Jesus, when they understand God's calling on their lives, we always hear the Lord warning them like is being done here in Mark 8:34, when he called the people to himself. That is the Lord Jesus called the people to himself with his disciples also. He said to them, 
Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the greatest biblical scholar in Jesus' day might very well have been Paul. Could have been Saul. It could have been Nicodemus. But you could not have found somebody who surpassed Paul in his labors for God, in his efforts to sacrifice and to give up for God. And he was lost. He was on his way to hell as a devout servant of God. But Christ came to him and rebuked him for opposing God, which cut him to the heart. And it changed him forever. For the rest of Paul's life, he was a different man who was utterly devoted to the service of Jesus Christ. John 15, 14 and 15 reminds us, it helps us know the difference between a religious person and somebody who knows the Lord Jesus. John 15, 14 says, you are my friends. You want to be friends with the Savior? You want to be friends with the King of the universe? You want to be friends with the one who gives eternal life? He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And verse 15 says, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. A friend of Christ is someone who obeys the Lord Jesus. Now look back in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Romans 1.1, Paul introduces us to himself. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Does any one of you have a a word other than bondservant there in your Bible? Is that what all of your Bibles say? What does yours say, Leah? Servant. Servant. Mm -hmm. I um, was listening to Pastor MacArthur teach on this word, bondservant, and Pastor MacArthur said there are probably 20 English translations, 20 different English translations of the New Testament. And only one consistently translates this word correctly. And I've told it to you many times this year. We've kind of looked at this word a number of times this year. The word is slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. The the English Bible that translates the word doulos consistently slave is called the Goodspeed Bible. I don't think any of you have ever even heard of it before. It was an English Bible published in around 1920. And he was a pretty vigilant Greek scholar. So, For reasons that may or may not be clear to you, English does consistently call this a bond servant. Now, we're going to consider this for a moment or two. The book of Romans is maybe maybe the greatest theological letter of the New Testament. And I say maybe because it's hard to pull one out and and isolate it from the rest of Scripture. You can't really do that. But its thoroughness and its depth is, is unmatched. And it is for the church. It is from Christ. By the slave of Christ. It is by the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and for faith. I want you to think about 
the meaning of this word. I want to look at this word in some context. Paul says, I am a slave. If you look at John 8, 34, you're going to see this same word. And I want to see how your Bible translates the word there in John 8. John 8.34 New King James uses the word slave. What do you guys have in your Bible? You see slave? Does yours say servant, Leanne? Slave. You will find when when your Bible is making a, a reference to, for example, slave of sin, when when the word doulos is connected to an inanimate object, like like sin, it does correctly translate it slave much more consistently. It's the same word though. When we look at Romans 1 1, Paul says, I'm a bond servant. Let me say it like this I am a doulos. I'm a doulos of Jesus Christ. That's the same as this word here in John 8. A doulos of sin. It means a slave of sin. 834. 834? It says condemn. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. John 834? Well, we'll have to look at that after church. Romans 6.16 and Romans 6.22 both use the word doulos again. Romans 6.16 and Romans 6.22 Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. It's the same root word. It's the same word. It doesn't say servant. It says slaves. And it's speaking specifically in reference to who you are obeying. Look at verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God... So that word doulos. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. The only way to really understand this word, even if it is translated servant, is if you know who the master is. In other words, when, when your translation might say servant of sin, what does that mean? Does that mean you take advice from sin? No. It means you obey sin. The point of the pair of words, the point of saying servant of sin in English instead of slave of sin would be to do what? Would be to take the edge off the power of that word. When you use the word slave, the options for your own interpretation and your own sovereignty are taken away. When you use the word slave, that should cause you to ask, who is the master? Now, we understand being a slave to sin. Do we understand being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ? There are many, many passages in the scripture that help us understand how clearly or how easy it is for us to know that this really is a reference to the word slave. I want you to look with me at Galatians 1.10. Look at Galatians 1.10.
Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians 1.10 For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Paul is in an argument with people who are not speaking back to him. It's a, it's a rhetorical argument. And he says, For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, even if you left that word bondservant, what does Paul mean when he says, when he says, if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ? What he means is, if I served men, I would not be a slave of Christ. In other words, the word is consistently used in reference to who you are obeying, who the person is obeying. The apostle in Galatians 1 is a slave of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 4. Colossians 4. One and two. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I just read one. I meant to read four. Colossians 4, 1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master. Now, Colossians 4, 1 uses the word master. Who are they? What are they master of? Well, your English translation says servant or bondservant, right? Master, give your bondservant what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It should say, masters, give your slaves what is just. In other words, you are their master. Be just and fair to your slaves. It's exactly what it is saying in Colossians chapter 4. Now, where does the verse go in terms of applying that principle? How does it reinforce to that master how he is to understand it? He says, well, knowing you do this, knowing you also have a master. What does that mean? You be nice to your slaves because you are a slave of another. That's exactly what it means in Colossians chapter 4. Slave masters, you better be good to your slaves because you know that you also have a master. You are a slave. Look at 4.12. does a very similar kind of thing. 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, the, the you here is one of you Christians in Colossae. Epaphras, who is a fellow Christian with you in Colossae, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always. Who and what is a slave? It's a follower of Christ. It's a person whose master is Christ. There are numerous other passages that we might look at. But this, this word means slave. And it is clear that when Paul tells us, Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ, what he intends for us to know is that he is an obedient servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says a bond slave, 
when he says a doulos of Jesus Christ, the form of the word Jesus is such that there is no way to mistake that Paul is saying, I am his slave. When he says a doulos of Jesus, the of is connected to the word Jesus. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. This is his master. It's one word when he says of Jesus. So, in other words, let me summarize this and move forward. Paul's identity, when he introduces himself in the beginning of this letter, does does he tell us of his prowess and scholarship? Does he tell us how he got a PhD at Stanford or Oxford? I mean, he could have, and honestly, that fact would turn more heads than the way he has identified himself to the Romans. In other words, I am one of the highest successful scholars of Gamaliel from Tarsus. More people would be impressed in a worldly sense than saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. But this is how he introduces himself to these ones who receive this letter. Paul is who and what he is because of who he met on the road to Damascus. Meeting the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on his way to Damascus to arrest and kill Christians utterly and completely changed his life. And that is where Paul died to himself. That is where Paul gave up all worldly ambition, worldly wisdom, worldly titles. He gave all these things up and became a servant. He became a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks to men. He speaks specifically to men. And now this will help you understand the Romans who are receiving this letter. I'm going to try to connect this for you real quickly. Paul does speak to men who know they go away to a place that is foreign to them. In other words, he speaks to Christian people. He speaks to people who know there is a world to come. Otherwise, they could care less if he was a servant of Jesus Christ. They wouldn't take notice of him. They are on their way to a world they are foreign to. They don't know the king of this other world. They don't know the code of this other world because they've never seen the king. They've never known his realm. And Paul has been born again of the eternal kingdom. So when we consider just the opening lines of of the book of Romans, This is a gift to men. This is a treasure to men. And the reason I say that is it is a product of divine revelation. We read from Timothy. We read from Peter. This letter from the slave of Jesus Christ, who is the word, who was with God, who is the word, who was God, who is the word, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, Paul is a slave of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. The Christ means he is the Messiah. This letter is a supernatural letter given to men so that you can know what could not be known any other way. In other words, there is no way for you to understand Revelation unless it is revealed to you. Paul is a New Testament prophet. They call them apostles. Paul is a servant and a slave of King Jesus. God spent incredible suffering in the man 
Saul, who became Paul. In other words, the cost of the life given in Paul, the service rendered by Paul in providing a revelation so that you might know life. You know, early, early on here, we will see that, I think it's in verse 18, I'm not positive, but chapter one says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, those are words of revelation. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In other words, Paul explains. He says, men, women, wrath. The destructive, just wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And let me show you how to be saved from that wrath. It is divine revelation by one of the great, great, great scholars of that century who was divinely appointed because God called him and saved him, who tells us he is a slave of God. God offers life by faith in the Son. And if you would join yourself to the Son, then you would leave all worldly ambitions, all worldly fears. You would leave the promises and the accolades of this world. Just like Paul and you would say, Master, what would you have me do? I'm yours. I will obey you. You are my king. I am your subject. That is the call on men and women who long for eternal life. There's only faith in the Son that can give you eternal life. Paul is going to explain to you and I, this is going to be the greatest study we have uh, attempted to undertake in the scriptures in my time here in Laytonville when we study the gospel as he has explained it through the letter of the Romans. Please persevere with us and apply your own hearts in prayer as you seek the Lord with me to understand what this revelation means to us and what it means for us. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, I thank you for taking the life of, of Paul and bringing him to dying to himself. Dear God, he became a glorious servant who spoke of King Jesus, who is his master. Lord God, I pray that each one of us would, would learn to love the master and hate slavery to sin. Oh God, save men and women. Save them from the slavery to sin which destroys and disappoints and deceives. Oh God, we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.